My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Hi, I'm John Hemminghouse, speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast and ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Are you familiar with the concept of a fair-weather fan? That term normally refers to a person who becomes a fan of a sports team because the franchise has become popular and successful. For instance, if the Philadelphia Phillies made the baseball playoffs and were headed for the World Series, a lot of people who do not follow baseball, much less the Phillies, might take serious interest in the team. They might even spend money going to games and buying Phillies merchandise because the team is winning. Such fans often are excited when the team's doing well, but many of these same people will lose interest if the team fails to meet their expectations. Did you know that Jesus had fair-weather fans during his days of public ministry on earth? He did, and tragically, there are still many fair-weather fans of Christ today. They'll act loyally to the Lord as long as it's popular to do so, but when persecution or suffering for Christ arises, they fall away. Pastor Jones plans to discuss three of those fair-weather fans as seen in the Gospel of Luke chapter 8 verses 57 through 62. I pray that you'll be blessed as you listen to this message entitled, Christ Demands Full Commitment. Good morning. This is Pastor Lane Jones from Calkins Baptist Church, and we're looking again at the life of Christ, and we're coming to a trip that Jesus and his disciples were making to keep the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And you may recall from previous messages, if you've listened into the broadcast, that Jesus' enemies were by now plotting to kill him, and they had planned to arrest Christ and to do away with him, and if uh, possible, when he came to this feast. It was on this trip that Jesus had three conversations with individuals who were potential followers. Now, by the way, Jesus was not crucified on this particular trip to Jerusalem. That would happen, a lot of scholars think, maybe about six months later uh, during the Feast of Passover. But it was on this trip that Jesus had these three conversations with again, the potential followers, and these conversations are very instructive on multiple levels. First, they reveal how fickle our commitment can be to the Lord, and second, they reveal just how seriously Christ expects us to take his call to follow him. So I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll go ahead and have a word of prayer. It says, Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me go first and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. That's Luke chapter 9 and verses 57 to 62. And so let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, thank you for your goodness. We thank you for each person that takes the time to listen to your word this morning. We pray you bless them for it. And we pray that you would open our hearts and minds uh, to the reality of our Savior calling us to a genuine and deep commitment, full commitment uh, to him, to you, and to your kingdom. And so I pray, Father, you'd give us courage as we look into your word. May we look at it honestly. May we look at ourselves honestly. And I pray that you'd guide us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first person who Jesus is dealing with is a person that illustrates shallow commitment. And unfortunately, it's a real man, a man that um, seems to 
be a religious man. Matter of fact, uh, Matthew gives a similar account of this, and he calls him a scribe. And a scribe was a person who spent their life in ancient Israel in studying the law of God and then, and then also all the rules and regulations that came off of it. And uh, so he was kind of like a lawyer in today's society. But in, in, in Israel, they would be looked upon as very, very religious, and many of them would have at least uh, loudly said that they believed uh, the word of God to be true. So... Let's read again, verse 57 and 58. Now, it happened as they journeyed down the road. Now, again, that's because they're headed toward that Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. That someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, this man is is showing a what I would call a shallow commitment. And uh, these, uh, as a scribe, this guy would know the word of God. He evidently had heard Jesus preach, maybe saw him do some of his miracles. And evidently, upon hearing and seeing Jesus, he was so impressed that he wanted to become one of Jesus' followers. And so he makes this very strong statement. And we'd have to say, it's clear. He says, Lord, I will follow you. He's not saying, well, I'm seriously considering being your follower, or I'd like to become your follower, but I have some concerns. He's not saying, uh, let me go home and ask my wife what she thinks, or he's not saying, uh, boy, if I can get out of my job, I'll become your follower. He's making a very clear statement, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. It's not only clear, but it's broad. Because if you think about it, he's saying wherever you go, it's very possible to act or even believe yourself far more committed and then you really are. And that's unfortunate, but it's true. And I think sometimes those of you that may be listening, but really you've kind of gotten turned off by Christian people. May I say that there are times when people may be well-meaning, but they really aren't committed. And so some of you have seen that. You've seen someone that is loudly professing faith in God, maybe weeping and going through all kinds of um, emotion. And by the way, that's not wrong in itself. Different personalities will uh, handle situations differently. There's nothing wrong with a person getting emotional about their faith in the Lord. But sometimes it's, that's all it is. It's just emotion. And that plays out over time. And I know it can be a source of great um, discouragement. And many times people get turned off toward the gospel itself because they say, well, look at all these people that are claiming to be children of God and they're acting more like children of the devil. Can I say to you that's the way it's always been? And we see it right here in Jesus' day. This guy's making a very clear statement, Lord, I will follow you. He's making a very broad statement, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now, I picked this up um, a while back. I really doubt it's true, but I just thought it was interesting. There's this, uh, what's called Quality Press, um, had an article in 1992, their August uh, 1992 edition. They said, in ancient Greece, legend has it. Lawmakers were asked to introduce all new laws while standing on a platform with a rope around their neck. If the law passed, the rope was removed, and if it failed, the platform was removed. Now, again, I, I kind of take that with a grain of salt. That'd be a very interesting way of cutting down on the laws that get through our Congress, though, wouldn't it? It kind of has an appeal to it. But what, what are they basically saying? It's easy to talk, isn't it? And many times, people are good talkers. But they're not 
real. They're not genuinely committed. And that's where Jesus is seeing through this guy. Now, so he, this guy has a very a clear, broad statement, a very strong statement that he's making to our Lord. He's saying, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now, Jesus has a strong answer in return. Verse 58, Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, what's he saying? He's saying animals have their homes. Why do animals have a home? Well, God provides them with uh, an instinct, many of them, to build a home. Just outside of our house, in the t- toward our backyard, a couple years ago, um, there was a, a set of birds, and they were building a nest right outside my window. And, and I know they can make a little bit of a mess, but to be honest with you, I didn't mind that. And I was enjoying, actually, watching them as they began to daub the mud up um, underneath our eaves, and they begin the process of bringing stuff up. It was quite quite interesting. Well, some person, I think it was a man from the church, was trying to help us out, and and so he was in the back there, uh, and he decided to do some uh, power washing, and so he saw that bird's nest, and he took her down. And but it was interesting. Uh, the birds were back at it a day or two later. And this time, I mean, I'm not going to get in their way. They they built their nest, and they had a little family in there. And uh, I, I don't know if they're still using it or not. The, the nest has been there for uh, more than a year now. Now, why? Because the bird has an instinct to build a home. God gave them that. They also have, God gives them the materials to do it. And they have the ability to go out and to pick out what they want in their new home. And they go out about, uh, and God's also given them the abilities to build it. You know, it's funny because our, our cat box, we have a neighbor that's been very kind to me, and so he had a cat that had died, and so he didn't need his outside cat box anymore, which was made out of some good material that was uh, like very uh, uh, insulating against bad weather, and just had a hole in it where the cat could get in. And so I thought, you know, that he thought maybe that'd be good for my cat. Well, I brought it back to the house gladly he actually brought it to my house and so we set it up and and we put the food of the cat in he didn't want to go in there i think he must have smelled the former cat looked at that as his home and didn't really want to have anything to do with it finally one of our neighbors was able to coax our cat into not only going in there to eat or whatever but to stay in there and to stay warm and so that's been a blessing but it's funny because uh, a few months ago i'm letting my cat outside and he likes the outside he enjoys being out there and when, even when it's cold he'll use his cat box many times so i let him out and i notice he kind of looks in that cat box and and doesn't seem to go in and I left the light on there for for a, a minute or so, kind of looking what was going on, and out sticks the nose of a possum. And so a possum decided that he would take that cat box as a home. And it was rather comical to watch as the possum kind of figured, well, I better get out of here. got this porch light on. So he hobbles out and starts kind of waddling 
around the outside of our house. And unbeknownst to him, our cat is up on a little porch just looking down at him, and you can just see it going through that cat's mind. Like, do I attack this thing and try to get myself a good old fight, maybe a little lunch? Or he's pretty big. Do I want to wait? And uh, my cat did uh, made, I think, the discretion better part of Valor idea. He decided that uh, he would not take that one on at that moment. But what, what's going on? An animal has an instinct. They want to have a home. And Jesus is saying here, the, even the foxes, they have holes. The birds of the air, they have nests. So ultimately, God provides a home for the animals. But Jesus is saying, the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, has nowhere to lay his head. He's saying, in my ministry, my Father, who is God himself, has not chosen to give me a permanent dwelling. So what he's really telling this guy, who's made a very clear and strong statement, very broad statement, I'll follow you wherever you go, what Jesus is saying is, well, uh, I don't even know where I'm going to sleep tonight. I don't necessarily, I don't have a home. And if you follow me, you may not have one either. That does not mean, by the way, that if you're a Christian and you have a home, you're somehow not following the Lord. But it does mean this, if God calls you to leave your home, you need to leave it. Or if God enables you for whatever reason, whether it be just or unjust, to lose your home, maybe through a fire, even through possibly him calling you to another area, or even some, many Christians down through the centuries have been persecuted and driven from their homes. Matter of fact, the, one of the early books of the New Testament is the book of James. And the uh, apostle James, he would be uh, actually Christ's half-brother, is writing to people who had been persecuted and had to leave their home. Listen to what he says to them. It's right at the beginning of his book. He says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Twelve tribes, he's talking about um, basically Jewish people, scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Now, what's the trials that they had fallen into? Well, they were dispersed. They had been driven out of their homes. And James is saying to them, count it all joy. You know, you're suffering for the kingdom of God's sake. Many of them were suffering because of their Christian faith. Jesus is saying, hey, the animals have homes. I can't guarantee if you're going to follow me, you're going to have one. You may not have one. And again, though God chose to provide homes for the animals, he did not choose to provide a permanent dwelling for his own son during his public ministry. And in the type of transient ministry that Jesus was doing, there were times where he and his disciples would, would find shelter in a building, but there were other times when they would be outside. As a matter of fact, the night of his arrest, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why is he there? Because that's where they were going to bed down for the evening. Of course, Christ knew what was going to come. We know that Jesus often met with his disciples in that garden. And they probably stayed a number of nights right there. So what he's telling the man is, I don't have a place to stay necessarily every night. You, if you follow me wherever I go, you may not have a place to stay either. That reminds me of a passage in Hebrews chapter 11 which is very powerful, where God talks about all of these people, and I would call them happy endings, where these people that, that saw God work in wonderful ways, 
And, and they saw, because they trusted the Lord, I'll just give you a, a few examples. Verse 32 and following says, What shall I more say? The time would fail me to tell of Gideon. Now Gideon had great victory. With only 300 man, men in his army, he fe- defeated a much, much larger force with the help of God. Barak is another guy that's mentioned here. And again, he is able to defeat a very powerful army with, with uh, less men and less technology. He didn't have the chariots that the, that the enemy had. Samson, he mentions him. And Samson, again, was able to be powerful over a number of the enemies of Israel in his day. Jephthah, another warrior. David, one of the greatest warriors of all time. King of Israel, Samuel, a great man of God. And the prophets, so he mentions all these fellows who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the army armies of aliens or the, the foreigners that were trying to invade the land. Women received their dead raised to life, life again. And boy, you wish you could stop it right there. Because there's a lot of happy endings that are in the Bible where people followed the Lord, they trusted in the Lord, and God worked in wonderful ways on their behalf. But I will tell you, and I think this is what Jesus is getting at with this maybe fair-weather follower, this man who's making these broad statements of his loyalty, and Jesus is honestly questioning how, how sincere he is about it. Not all the endings are happy endings. Right in the same verse, I mean, in Hebrews 11 at verse 35, in the, in the middle of verse, it says, Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. So others had trial of mockings and scourgings. That's, that's being whipped. Yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Were tempted. Were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in dens and caves of the earth and mountains. All of these. Now, the people that had the happy endings, as well as the people that had what we would look at as tragic endings, all these having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. All of them, he's talking about these Old Testament saints, would go to their graves without ever seeing the Messiah, the promised Christ. Now, so what Jesus is saying is, serving me is not just a a thing of, of happy endings. And I think those of you that have heard people, maybe on television or radio, and they make it sound like the Christian life is supposed to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and and everything is supposed to, you know, you're supposed to conquer at all times. Imagine, say, I think you probably pick up the air of, of a lack of reality there. And I'm just saying, there is a lack of reality there, because the scriptures are clearly telling us, and our Lord is telling this man who thinks he's going to follow Jesus wherever he goes, he's saying, you better think about this. Because following me wherever I go doesn't even mean you'll always have a roof over your head. In Romans chapter 8, there's another uh, passage along this same line. And I'm not trying in any way to discourage you, but I'm trying to say this, and because many of you may be going through very difficult circumstances, and you're wondering, well, where is God in all of this? May I say to you that you cannot judge God's love 
by your present earthly circumstances. God's up to bigger things than we can see. In Romans chapter 8, in verse 35, he says, um, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, now that's really bad difficulty, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, even violence done against us? Does this mean when, when these horrible things, I mean persecution, distress, famine, nakedness, peril, great danger, even sword, even being violently killed or wounded, do those things mean that God doesn't love you? No, he said, who will separate us from the love of Christ? He says next, as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. So what's he saying? He's saying your circumstances can be horrific at times as a believer. But that doesn't mean you aren't still a conqueror in Christ. For I am persuaded, he goes on, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities. These are demonic beings he's talking about. Nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's Paul saying? He's saying don't judge the love of God by your circumstances. Don't think that just because it's not going healthy and wealthy and wise for you, that means God doesn't love you. I'm uh, preparing for a, a funeral. Uh, it's going to be a, probably one of the most difficult I've done. And um, I won't go into too much detail, but it's a young person that had passed away suddenly. And one of the things I've been pondering is the reality that we are so quick, both as believers and as non-believers, to think we can rightly judge a difficulty such as a tragic loss. Let me give you on the believer's side. Sometimes we want to judge to almost defend God, as it were, uh, when someone goes through tragedy, and so we're looking for that silver lining. And we may say something like, well, see, this person died, but look at all these other people were helped. And there may be some truth in that, that there's that God does bring blessing through that sorrow. But if you're the wife of the man that died, or you're the husband of the woman that died, or maybe you're the child, would you not be saying to yourself, I'm really glad that God has worked something good out of this, but I really wish he hadn't have done it at the, at the sake of my loved one. Can I say that it's, it's not that simple? The reality is we don't know why God acts the way he does. And we can be very foolish in assuming we do. Let me read you a passage that I've used a number of times on this broadcast, but it is so powerful. It's in Isaiah chapter 55, and I'm going to read, start with verse 7 and read down to verse 9. It says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Now hang on to that one. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon now, God's still speaking. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is the reality of the analogy that God's using here, and that is he's comparing our ability to think and to reason with his ability and he's saying it's like the difference between you being on earth and the height of the heavens. And we still haven't figured out how massive this physical universe is. That analogy is fascinating to me because if you try to put this in, in terms, if we had, um, if we had some, someone that says, you know what, I want to figure out, and, and I'm, maybe some of you have done this, I, I want to figure out how many stars are in the universe. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. Is there an answer to that question? Well, yeah, there, there is. Now, because of star formation, um, there's a lot of scientists that feel new stars are being formed, as well as star deaths. You'd have to pinpoint it. You know, to a to a second or a millisecond, but but the idea is okay. At a given point of time, there is a real number of stars that are out there. So God is comparing. He's saying like that's like the heavens higher than the earth. That's where my understanding is at compared to yours. So I want you to think. Okay, you're going to come up with a way to figure out the exact number of stars at a given point. How are you going to do that? And as of right now, as of the technology and the abilities that we have right now, I can just tell you, you're not going to be able to do it. And there's some reasons why. First of all is we, we don't have the technology to even see to the end of the universe. We, we don't even know how much is out there. That's a problem. A second problem is although we can have some ideas and they have tried to map as much as they can of the known, what we call the known universe, there are... Um, we don't, we can't get the details. We can we can see maybe galaxies that are out there. I don't know if you've seen one of the most famous photographs that uh, uh, that I enjoy looking at. It's called the Hubble Deep Field. The Hubble Telescope, until just recently, was our major, our best telescope in outer space, and they had sent it up. Oh, a number of years ago. I don't remember the exact date, but they they were claiming that they're going to see it at the end of the universe, which they were not able to do. But anyway, one of the things is they finally got that thing focused in. There's a photo, and it's amazing that every dot of light you see in that photo is not a star. It's a galaxy. And those galaxies can have billions upon billions of stars in them. And so if we were going to think of a way to to figure out the exact number of stars in the universe, at this point we can't because there's too many factors that we don't know. Uh, we, don't, we don't know uh, how big the universe is. We don't know um, if there's any kind of a, of a common ratio of, of, of stars in a galaxy. As far as we can tell at this point, I don't think we have even the, the suspicion that it's that way. There's just too many factors. And God says my thinking compared to your thinking is like that. And so many times we will, as Christians, we think we have it down as to why God did something. And I really do think it's because we're trying to defend his honor as if it needs defending and his goodness. And the reality is we don't know. 
I believe that in the vast majority of cases when God acts, there are just, I don't know, multitudes of reasons why he's doing what he's doing. Because your life and my life don't just affect ourselves. They affect uh, many other people, many of whom we don't even realize that they're affecting. So to figure out why God is doing something, he has a perspective that is an eternal perspective compared to our earthly perspective. He sees everything going on. And and the impact that it'll have on everything else, his mind is way beyond ours. Now, can I say that from the unbelieving side, we can make the same mistake? And that is people say this. They say, well, I can't see any good reason why this tragedy happened, and therefore I'm going to conclude one of two things. Either God is not good or God is not existent. And again, it's a very simplistic answer to a question that we don't have the information to answer. We don't. The purposes of God run eternally, not temporarily. It isn't always supposed to be a happy ending here on earth. But God does tell us that there will be justice and there will be a proper reward in heaven. And we can trust what he says, but but he tells us right up front, your ways are not my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Another thing that we can we can also assume as well, then I guess nothing is knowable, and that's not right either. We spend millions and probably billions of dollars a year studying space. Why? Because we can't know anything? No. We don't know everything. We don't know most about what's going on out there, but we can learn something. And those lessons can help us. It's the same way with, with knowing God. You won't know everything about him. You won't begin to know everything about him. But you can know something. And so beware of this attitude that thinks, I've got to figure out what God's doing. You can't. And neither can I. So this unnamed man, he's made this strong statement to Christ. And our Lord just stops to challenge him to think a little bit deeper than what his commitment uh, was was supposedly saying. Because following Christ, wherever he leads, can lead you into times of great sacrifice, into times of great uncertainty, into times of great want. And what Jesus is really saying to this guy is, are you really up for this? Um, let me read you out of the same Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. And... Jesus is talking again to another group of people, and you could, you could look at them as potential followers. It says, now great multitudes went with them. So these guys are people that are following right along with Jesus. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, what does he mean by that? He says this to the whole crowd. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build 
and was not able to finish? Or what king, going out to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Wow. Interesting. Missionary David Livingston, some of you may know who that man was. He lived back in the 1800s, and he's credited um, with going to the continent of Africa and really opening that up to Christian mission. And so he traveled in very remote and dangerous places for many years. Well, a missionary society... According to the Good News Broadcaster, it's a April 1985 edition. They uh, sent word to Livingston as follows. Have you found a good road to where you are? If so, we want to know how to send other men to join you. When Livingston got that letter, he wrote the following reply. If you have men who will come only if they know there is a good road, I don't want them. I want men who will come if there is no road at all. There's a pioneer missionary with that kind of spirit that following Jesus wherever he goes means whatever he sends my way. Uh, Livingston at one point in his life was attacked by a lion viciously. Um, matter of fact, uh, kind of maimed him for the rest of his life. Uh, these men, and I, I have a, a, a friend of mine, he was my dad's age, a godly man. He went to Central African Republic back in the 50s with his family. And his wife and, and him both ended up with pretty severe cases of malaria to the place where his wife could not go back. But even when he would be at our house, um, years later, he would sometimes have an attack of malaria. It's one of those things that doesn't get out of your system. But why? He, he paid a price for being willing to follow the Lord wherever Christ led him. And that's what the Lord's trying to indicate to this fellow. It's that if you're really serious that you want to follow me wherever I go, that's not always an easy road. Well, there's a second guy who comes up to Jesus, or actually Jesus is, talks to him first. He, this is guy, I think, illustrates what I will call a delayed commitment. It says, verse 59, Then he said to another, Follow me. But the man replies to Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Now, the circumstances are different than our last man. In this case, Jesus is asking this guy to be his follower. The other guy kind of volunteered. Nothing wrong with that. But in this case, Jesus is seeking this guy out and he's saying, I want you to preach the kingdom of God. And the man was actually contemplating and calculating the cost. That's what our Lord would later say that we ought to do. And so, as this man was more deeply considering what it might involve to follow Jesus, there was a cost he did not want to pay. And that was that he had a father. It doesn't seem like, because of the culture in the Middle East, they would bury a man the day he died. So I really don't think this was the day of his father's death and and he's says to Jesus, i got to go to the funeral, and then I'll go. I really don't think that's what he's saying. I think what's going on here is that his father is elderly, and he's getting to the place where he's going to die you know, fairly soon, very possibly. And so he wants to 
stay with his dad until his dad's death. Now, you can understand, this sounds a little bit, at least a little bit more noble than the first guy, who seems to make this big commitment and really not think about what he's saying. I can, I can identify with this one somewhat, because my, my father is uh, 86 now, and um, I've mentioned maybe once or twice on this broadcast that his health took a really bad turn. Um, it was probably more than a year ago, a year and a half ago, and yet God in his mercy has strengthened him, and he's uh, still with us, and actually has gotten back to preaching in his church in Florida and um, I don't know how much longer God will give him, but it's been a blessing, you know, every day that we have him. And so, you know, I can feel sympathy for this guy and what he's thinking. And so Jesus is basically saying that, okay, this guy had one thing holding him back, and that is he wanted to stay near his father during the last days of his life. Now, what Jesus says to him, though, is let the dead bury their dead and go preach the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying the need and the urgency of what needs to be done that I want you to do outweighs your concern. Now, I think many of you could understand this if you put this in the context of, say, World War II, when young men across the land were drafted to fight for our nation's survival from the Axis powers of Germany, Italy, and Japan, and their attempt to take over the world, very literally. The urgency of that threat trumped the many legitimate concerns that literally millions of young men left behind. They left behind friends. They left behind siblings. They left behind girlfriends. They left behind parents. Many of them left behind their fiancés. There were many that left behind their wives and even their children. Some of those children were not even born. They left them behind to defend this land because the concern out and the, and the genuine need to, to fight off these aggressive powers, it outweighed their love for family and friends and home. Some of these people never returned. Some children were born that never knew their father. And we rightly honor them for their sacrifices. We rightly honor those who God saw fit to live through the war and return home. But do we expect that the conflict for the souls of men does not at times demand the same level of sacrifice? And should we not also honor those who forsake all for the cause of Christ and the salvation of souls? And you say, well, is the need that urgent? Oh, yeah. Sometimes God's work is very time-sensitive. Matter of fact, I think it's far more time-sensitive than we realize. Many of you might remember March 30th, 1981, not that you'd remember that date, but that was the day when President Ronald Reagan was outside of a building and John Hinckley Jr. had a, I think it was a 22 and a, some kind of a pistol and he shot, I think he got six shots off at the president trying to kill him before he was wrestled to the ground. There was a bodyguard for the president named Timothy McCarthy. And Tim McCarthy jumped in front of those flying bullets and took one right in the chest, trying to save the president's life. And, and very possibly he did with that action. He didn't have time to think about what his wife or his girlfriend may want him to do. He didn't have time to think about what his parents would say 
by jumping in? Because uh, if you love Tim, Tim, would you not say, I, I love President Reagan, but don't do it. Don't give your life like that. Young guy in his early 30s. Thankfully, he survived that uh, shot directly to the chest and went on, to, and he's uh, still alive, I believe, today. But there are things that you just don't have, you don't have time to wait. And many times in ministry, the, the people need the gospel, and they need it now. And we cannot wait. And our Lord is saying to this fellow, you're going to have to drop everything you got. I need you to preach the gospel right now. Now, many of us are tempted, and we're saying, well, I, I will, I'll do it, Lord. I, I'll serve you. I'll, I'll you know, give my life over to doing whatever you want me to do. But let me first... And then you start plugging in the in the blank. Well, I've got elderly parents, or I, I want to make sure I take care of my retirement, or I want to make sure I raise my kids, or I want to get married first, or whatever it is that you've got on your list and said, me first, because that's really what he's saying. Me first. I need to do this before I'm willing to serve you. That's what you would call a time-delayed commitment. Now, there's a third guy who Jesus is going to deal with. Before I get to him, let me just say one more thing about the time-delayed commitment. I find this in my own life, that there are many times when I have an idea about doing something, and I feel this attitude in my heart, and that is, that's a great idea, just don't do it now. And I'm convinced that many times, that's exactly where the devil wants us. He wants us in, oh, that's a wonderful idea to go help your neighbor. It's a wonderful idea to call that, that person that you know is suffering and, and you've been wondering how they're doing. Uh, one of these days you should get to that. And I tell you that when God's speaking to your heart about moving, you need to move. And I'm not talking about just moving your house. I'm talking about uh, going after and and trying to be a blessing to someone around you. I'll give you one example, and and I know this by knowing the people involved. That again, that missionary fellow that that um, went to Africa and got malaria. Um, as an older man, I heard him or his sister tell the story about a lady in their community. Now, this is back many decades ago because the man now is in his late 80s. But um, a lady in their community who was a godly woman, and the thought comes into her mind, I need to check on a housewife, a neighbor of hers. Uh, this neighbor had an unsaved husband. He was quite abusive um, at times. And she just really felt, I need to check on. And she thought, you yeah, know, that's a good idea. And she said something like, well, I'll do it right after I hang the wash out. And the thought comes back into her mind. It's like, no, no, you need to go, and you need to go now. Well, the woman really took that as from the Lord. And so she goes over to her neighbor's house, and she knocks on the door. No one comes to the door. But feeling that, boy, this is not normal. This is an impression that I'm really getting I need to follow through. Um, she actually went to, and, and went around the house, and in the backyard, and their backyard was on the Susquehanna River, out in uh, Sunbury area, that, that general area. She 
saw her neighbor lady that she was convinced she needed to go see, and she's standing on the side of this Susquehanna River with her two little ones in her arms ready to jump in and end her life with her children. Of course, she jumps over there and um, talked her out of it. And one of those two babies in her arms is my missionary friend that, um, again, my dad's age, he went to Bible school with my father and spent many years in, in Africa serving the Lord. Um, that was an urgent thing to do. If, if she'd have waited five minutes, who knows what would have happened. I'm not saying that everything is like that. I will just say this, that there are things that you need to get to that are time-sensitive. And be careful when you feel like you know, God is, is leading you to be a blessing to somebody, to call somebody up, to help somebody. Um, I'd encourage you to act on it and not just put that thing off on the back burner to get to whenever you want to, especially if you really feel strongly in that area. Now, there's a, a, a third area, a third man, and he illustrates really what I would call a half-hearted commitment. In verse 61, it says, Another also said, Lord, I will follow you. But let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Now, this is the second guy in a row that said me first. And I don't think that's accidental in the text. So he says, I'm going to follow you, but here's what I want to do first. I want to go home to my house, and I want to have kind of a party and tell everybody what I'm doing. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to be one of his followers now and, and that type of thing. And Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So we see this man, and he makes a promise. And that is, Lord, I will follow you. But he also is evidently, he's openly giving his real priority, which is me first. And in this case, I, what I'm going to do first is I'm going to bid them farewell at my house. Now, the priority then is not Christ in this man's life. It's, well, I've got a few things I want to do first. It's what I call a half-hearted commitment. This is seen in a few different ways. I believe you'll see why Jesus is not impressed with this man's professed loyalty as we answer just a few simple questions. And the first one is this. Who takes the true priority then, Jesus or the man himself? And it's obvious that me first means I take priority. That man was thinking himself, was well, I'll, I'll get to Jesus being first as soon as I do this other thing. But the reality is, when does that ever stop? When does your desire to put yourself first ever stop? Well, it doesn't. It's a, one of the, another one of those myths that one of these days I'm going to get to serve in the Lord. Let me ask you another question. What activity is given priority? Following Christ or a farewell to the family? Again, he says, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my home. I'm going to have this big send-off party. We're going to have a good time. Maybe tell my girlfriend what I'm up to or whatever it is. And we're going to have... No, the activity is, is replacing Christ first in his life. A third question, is he truly surrendering to Jesus or is he bargaining with Jesus? Let me read to you what he says again. I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them that are fair, that are bid them farewell who are at my house. So is he truly surrendering to Jesus or is he bargaining with him? And I would submit to you he's bargaining with Christ. He's effectively saying that he will be Jesus' follower if he can dictate some of the terms. Can I tell you this? 
because there's a there's an attitude among Christians today that we're like God's employee, not his love slave. When I mean love slave, I'm not talking about anything sexual or immoral. I'm talking about being a voluntary slave of the Lord, but surrendering all to him and saying, God, you can call all the shots. Not a few of them. You're not the CEO. You're not my employer. So if you treat me well and you give me good benefits, then I'll serve you. That's not what, what, what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be his voluntary slave. It's called a bond servant. This guy is, is, wants to be more of an employee. I've got a few things I want, and then you can give me what you want. And So what is the man committing to? Well, he's really committing to idolatry. He's really s- selfish. He's prideful because he wants it his way. Christ is not willing to call an idolater his true follower. The man needed to make a choice. You know what the choice is? Matthew 6, 24 says, You cannot serve God and mammon or possessions. Christ strongly rebuked and even rejected this man. And it shows us that this guy's intention was to live by a trait that would prove deadly, and that is, I will follow you loyally after I take liberty to do, and you can fill in the blank. The reality is, if you're not holding, excuse me, if you are holding onto a certain liberty that you want for yourself and not willing to submit to Christ, you have said in effect that you are still the master of your soul, not Christ. Now, what do we conclude from all this? You can see that Jesus does not take these things lightly, calling ourselves his followers. Well, we can first of all see that some people make shallow commitments to Christ. They have the flowery words, I'll follow you wherever you go. But words are cheap. And lots of people make great promises of love and loyalty to God. And the reality is they don't follow through. One of the sources of the problem of hypocrites in the church is this very thing. Well, we can say the real, you know, the wonderful things, and we can cry the crocodile tears, but it's not real. And our Lord's not impressed by that. And don't judge our Lord's true followers by that. They're not perfect people, God's true followers, but they're not, they're not just the big talkers. Number two, some who are called to follow Christ put it off. Just like that second guy. And why do they put it off? Well, for family. And that's that's a, a big motivation. Or for enjoyment. But I want to sow my wild oats before I before I serve God. Or maybe it's a financial gain. I've, I've got to make sure I have my retirement set up so I can be taken care of. Or maybe it's uh, some other self-centered plans you have. You know, I want to pursue my career in Whatever it is, before I, you know, I want to experience that. I want to travel the world. I want to, whatever it is, I've got to do that before I can follow the Lord. Let me say, thirdly, we conclude from this that Christ's call is time sensitive. You've only got so much time. And God knows what, how much time you have. And he also knows how much time the people he wants you to reach have. His call is time sensitive. We also see from this that some people want to follow Christ on their own terms. And again, God's not looking for employees. If you're checking out the benefit package, you come to the wrong source. Don't come to Jesus for the benefit package. Because that's not what Christianity is all about. And our Lord is clearly saying that to that first guy. 
I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, hey, I don't, I can't guarantee you, pal, that you're going to have a, a home over your head. I mean, that's a house, a roof over your head. I can't guarantee you're going to have a house. So understand what, what our Lord is saying. He's not looking for employees. He's looking for voluntary slaves, people. And you say, well, why would I ever want to do that with God? Because of what he's done for you. Did he not pay for your sins? Did he not rescue you from hell? That's what salvation is. Did he not uh, give you victory over sins that were binding you? If, if you're saved, that's what should be going on. If that's the case, and you really understand forgiveness and God's love and his mercy, then people like that, they want to serve him. They want to give their lives to him. And that's why you have so many people who are writing the New Testament books are referring to, to their relationship to God as a bond servant, that voluntary love slave, the idea of a person who is by love for God and what he's done for me, I will do whatever he wants me to do. Paul, opening the book of Romans, says that. Opening the book of Philippians, he says that. James, uh, Jesus' half-brother, says he is Christ's bond servant. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter 1.1. Jude, another half-brother of Christ, says the same thing in the opening of his book. The Apostle John says the same thing in the opening of his book in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, calling himself his servant or his slave, God's slave. Bottom line is you can't share the throne of your heart with Christ. It's either God on the throne and Christ on the throne or you. That's a choice that only you can make. So are you genuinely saved do you genuinely know Christ? You know, if, if being uh, a voluntary slave to the Lord is something you don't want any part of, then you really have to ask yourself, do I really understand salvation? And But number two, if you are a, a follower of Jesus and you truly do know him as your Savior, have you gotten away from that type of a deep and loyal commitment to your Lord? In James chapter 4, Here's what the Lord says. He says, He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Make sure you're surrendered to God. Because the bottom line is this, you can't serve God and self. It's one or the other. If you would like some spiritual help, like counseling or prayer, you can email us at help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. If you'd like to listen to this message again, send it to a friend or access the site where both the studies of the messages of Christ and the life of Christ can be found. The link to our podcast is at RadioBold.com slash CalkinsBaptist. Again, the podcast address for both the messages of Christ and the life of Christ studies is RadioBold.com slash CalkinsBaptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. And everlasting life and light, he frees.